When I first met Philando, he was staying with his grandfather in the house right behind us. Uh, 749 Dayton, yeah. This is 74 Seconds. I'm Reham Fishier. I'm John Collins. And I'm Tracy Mumford. You'll be hearing from all three of us as we bring 74 Seconds to a close. We sit on the porch over here every day, you know, so every day is a trigger of a memory. That's Greg Crockett. He'd been friends with Philando since they were kids. I met up with him in St. Paul, in the neighborhood where he and Philando grew up. He was hanging out on a porch with some of Philando's cousins. This is where they've all hung out for years. Philando and his close friends playing Xbox, talking basketball. I come over here every day, so... There's not really, like, any place that I can go. Like, he walked these streets, he stepped on these concrete walkways more than I have, you know, so constantly reminded. In the last year, Philando Castile has gone from being Greg Crockett's quiet friend to being a chant, a headline, a name at the forefront of conversations about police use of force. You know, he wasn't an attention-grabbing dude like that anyway. So, you know, he'd probably be a little bit uncomfortable. Like, you know, he'd probably be sitting here right now, and, and, and you might forget that he was here. You hear him laugh every once in a while about it like that. Like, you know, he wasn't that loud in your face guy. He'd probably prefer to be right here. To Greg and everybody on the porch... He's still just Philando. Well, I prefer nobody knew his name. But us. And I'd rather just us know his name. started this podcast two and a half months ago, we didn't know what would happen, where this case would go. Philando Castile's story had captured the world's attention through the shocking Facebook video of his final moments. And when we started, we were on the eve of the trial of Geronimo Yanez, the police officer who faced manslaughter charges for killing Castile. It was historic. No police officer in state history had ever been charged for shooting and killing someone while on duty. Now, the trial is over. Yanez was found not guilty. The Castile family reached a $3 million settlement with the St. Anthony Police Department. And still, people are grappling with how to move on. What changes this case will or will not bring. That Facebook video, which was watched by millions, it brought new people into the conversation of police training and use of force. And Minnesota has now shown that police officers are not above prosecution. In this last episode, we want to trace some of the lingering impacts of this case and look at how Philando Castile's story fits into the larger, pressing issue of police shootings around the country. First, even though the protests have quieted, and many people have put their signs away, Philando Castile's name is still out there. I really didn't know that, you know, I got accepted for that scholarship. And 
like when they said it was like the Philando Castell Award, like I went on stage and like, man, like I almost got teary eyed. Like I was like, man, thank you. Like I, that's all I could say to his family. It's like, thank you. Thank you. When you talk about Philando Castile's legacy and what's left behind to mark his life, there are murals and paintings and songs and a bench on the grounds of the elementary school where he worked. And there's Marquez Watson, the first ever recipient of the Philando Castile Scholarship. I just want to make sure um, I get a, a good job, like a nice paying job and, you know, get out the hood and move my mom with me and stuff. So, um yeah, I just kind of want to you know, get my family out the, out the hood and you know, get out of poverty. Watson graduated in June from Philando's alma mater, Central High School in St. Paul. And with a scholarship funded by donations in Philando's name, he's going to college. Philando Castile's name will also live on through the Philando Castile Relief Foundation, which his mother Valerie Castile set up after his death. She plans to use funds from her family's settlement with the city of St. Anthony to seed the foundation. She wants to use it to help victims of gun violence and police violence. And last month, the governor of Minnesota proposed putting Philando Castile's name on something else, too. A new state training fund for police. The governor got a lot of press for that proposal, but he can't actually make that decision the naming decision has to be made by the post board. And that's the group that oversees police licensing. The board is a mix of law enforcement and the public. And Clarence Castile, Philando's uncle, sits on that board. He was just appointed this summer. John was there last month when this board convened to vote on this naming proposal, on whether or not to change the fund to honor Philando Castile. At the meeting, Clarence talked about what he thought naming the fund after Philando would mean for the community. It bridges a gap, it renews, it, it reinstates relationships. It's, it's that olive branch that's being extended by law enforcement and government saying that we want to try to start to rebuild a positive relationship. A handful of others testified too with similar remarks. The board also considered letters from law enforcement who wrote in from all over the state. We looked at those letters, and there was huge opposition to the name change. Some pointed out that no training fund had ever been named after a person before, not even a fallen police officer. Others said naming the fund after Philando Castile was a slap in the face to law enforcement. Geronimo Yanez had been found not guilty. Changing the name could be seen to undermine that. In the end, the post board sided with the input from law enforcement. They voted 8-2 to two not to name the training fund after Philando Castile. Clarence and another member of the public were on one side, everyone else on the other. Valerie Castile was there for all this. Reporters caught up with her after the vote as she was waiting for the elevator. Ms. Castile, is this a step back in police community relations? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. You could see Clarence Castile struggling with the outcome of this vote. It was his first meeting as a member of the post board, and he watched nearly every other member vote against honoring his nephew with the fund's name. I caught up with Clarence last week at his house to talk about how he's moving forward. He said now he's even more focused on making change. You're, pre you're pretty optimistic. You're not disappointed 
No, God, no. I mean, verdict and then this. If 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 I was to get disappointed, you know what? I would I would I would go in my hole on the other planet under the rock. You know, I would I would go so deep, you'd never hear from me again. But I'm not going there. That's not in our DNA. You know, if anything, I'll go harder now. Clarence said that before Philando was killed, he wasn't involved in the push for police reform. He didn't know much about it, how training worked, the rules around use of force. But since last July, he's learned everything he can. He wants to understand the system so he can help change it. I have this experience now of, of, of suffering, a loss, which has created this passion in me to take information to the people. Clarence has even signed up now, at 57 years old, to be a reserve police officer with the St. Paul Police Department. This is remarkable to think about. You have a family member killed by an officer and sign up to wear the uniform yourself. He wants to build trust between police and the community. And the way to do that, he thinks, is to be part of both. Well, hopefully I'll have the opportunity, you know, in this uniform to be able to talk to people and, and hopefully they will get the impression that there are some some good people in uniforms. You know, even though something bad happened to me and my family doesn't mean we're going to look at law enforcement in a different way. I mean, we've always respected law enforcement and we always will. You know, the thing about law enforcement, when 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 law law enforcement officers make mistakes, it's very rare that they apologize and actually say that they made a mistake. And that's what we talk about accountability. There's, there's, not, there's no accountability now. Now Clarence Castile joining the post board, becoming a reserve officer, getting involved in the system. He's not the only person close to Philando who radically changed his life after the shooting. I can't even be John Thompson no more, man. I have to be, uh, I have to choose my words carefully now. I have to be somebody who I wasn't before last year. This wasn't my life. No, I was just... I was just like Philando. I get off work, I hang out, and you know, we, we go. I either hang out with my son or hang out with my friends. Now it's a 24 at 7 activist lifestyle for me, man. John Thompson worked with Philando at JJ Hill Elementary. The school's just a few blocks from the coffee shop where we met up. His collection of Philando hats, which he now has more than 20 of, are hard to miss in the crowds at protests and marches. But those protests and marches, those are all new for him. You know, the first day I came out and, and, and spoke, man, was today, last year, which is one of the Black Lives Matter activists gave me the microphone. And I came out to speak on this day because this was one of the first days where they were kind of slandering Philando's name. And it was, you know, just he had these tickets and he had all these brushes with the law and he's a pothead and, you know, just trying to slander his name. And I know my friend. I know exactly who Philando was. So I had to come out and let the world know the Philando I know. Philando I know likes to play chess. The Philando I know likes to play video games. I just, I just thought it was the need to come out and speak on behalf of Philando because he didn't have a voice. And this is not the Philando I know. He's been everywhere now. At the state capitol, on the radio, on TV, interviewed by international reporters. It's exhausting. Activism takes a toll, he said. I just hope that I'm effective in a positive way, man. I hope that I'm very effective in a positive way because, uh, honestly, I am Philando. I show up to work every day with my wide said nose. Every day I'm in St. Anthony, I fit the description. Until they change it, 
what they're doing here in Minnesota, you gonna hear my voice, so get used to it. Oh, it's not fun. This, this work's not fun. I don't like, I'd rather just go back to being John Thompson. We reached out to other people who have been central in the story to ask them what's next. What's different now? What's changed? What hasn't? Diamond Reynolds, though we've talked to her, wasn't available for an interview. The governor declined our request. So did Prosecutor John Choi and St. Anthony's police chief, John Mangseth. Geronimo Yanez has never responded to any request that we've made for an interview. We know very little about what's next for him. St. Anthony paid him nearly $50,000 as part of an agreement to part ways, and he'll also be paid for up to 600 hours of unused comp time. His old house was put up for sale this summer. The state database shows that his police license is currently inactive. As part of all this, Reham also reached back out to Jim Glennon, who you've heard in a previous episode. He's one of the trainers behind the Bulletproof courses, the controversial training that Yanez participated in, the ones that emphasize how police should handle threatening situations. I caught him on the phone as he was about to board a plane to Hawaii for another training. I asked him if the trainings he gives have changed at all since Geronimo Yanez killed Philando Castile. He said their trainings are always evolving, but he has been using this story as a case study. He said he plays the dash cam footage of the traffic stop for police officers in his trainings. We'll stop the video midway, um, or at different points actually, and ask the people in the audience, the officers, you know, what's going on right, what's going on wrong, why do you think this is happening? Glennon says there's nothing they criticize directly, but they do talk about how things could have been done differently. What if Yanez had ordered Castile out of the car with his hands up, or if he had taken a different position during the stop? Listen, we show a lot of videos where police officers flat out do something wrong, and we can't justify what they do. Uh, many videos, we, we do that. And this one, we don't. We don't look at it as a right or wrong. We look at this as a learning opportunity because no one knows what actually happened in the car. Sir, I have to tell you, I do have a okay. firearm on okay. me. Don't reach for it, then. Police officers all over the country have now watched those fatal 74 seconds as part of their training. As we close 74 seconds, we want to put some numbers in front of you. As dramatic and surprising and emotional and historic as Philando Castile's case was, he was one of 963 people shot and killed by police last year. That number, 963, that would have been nearly impossible to find if it wasn't for the Washington Post. The Post has an online database, which they launched in 2015, that tracks police shootings across the country. So we're first week of August, and we're at 594 fatal shootings. And this is probably, because this is a Monday morning, this is probably a going into the weekend number. And so I bet we're, we're just shy of uh, 600 fatal shootings probably right now. Might even be at 600. That's Wesley Lowry, a journalist at The Post, giving me the updated number so far for 2017. 
He's one of the Post staffers who helps compile this running number, which, before they started, did not exist in one comprehensive place. Uh, we, we saw this as I was reporting in Ferguson back in 2014. You know, we'd write these stories where we would interview residents or activists or civil rights attorneys, and they would say, unarmed black men are being ex- executed in the streets every single day. And then we'd go to the police and the police unions, and they'd say, no, that's definitely not happening. We rarely ever kill anybody. And so we'd have these kind of he said, she said stories. And fortunately, you know, some of my editors at the, at the Post and other folks said, well, which of these is true? You know, you know either police shootings are rare or people are being executed in the streets every day. Both of these things can't be true. So we started poking around to see if we could find this data. Uh, we thought maybe the DOJ would have it. Uh, it turns out they did not, that uh, they cannot compel any local police department to provide this information. So they try to keep a count, but it's completely voluntary, which means the numbers aren't very good. Then we started going kind of state by state, and there were some states where this information was available, but many where they were not. And so what we ended up doing ultimately was building a, a real-time database of police shootings. And so we know we're missing some. It's not um, incidents with tasers are not in there, for example, or, or beatings would not be in there, but police shootings. And the way we've gathered our data is via a complex, essentially, Google Alert uh, system where we search every single day for any local news coverage of any fatal police shooting. If someone is shot and killed by the police, one time uh, someone is going to stand next to the crime scene tape and do a hit for the noon newscast, or one time the local police reporter is going to write it down, no matter how big a market, a New York or a D.C., or a small market, tiny places in Idaho and Wyoming. Someone is shot and killed by the police at least once. Someone writes about it, and once it's written about once, we can find it and start trying to find out more information. Well, so now that you've been doing this for a few years, that the Washington Post has been making this data available, I mean, when you started to put these numbers together and see how many there were? I mean, were you surprised? What was your takeaway when you first saw this data coming together? Oh, when we first started, it was very surprising to see how often, how frequently these shootings were happening. Um, What we see now, you know, we've got about almost three years of data, and we've seen this trend line consistently, is that about three people are fatally shot and killed by police every single day, right? And so certainly um, what police would say is, you know, we have millions of contacts and this is hyper-rare, but, you know, know, three people being killed every day is not necessarily that rare. This is a daily occurrence in the United States of America. Um, And and that was initially very surprising to us. And so three years later of looking at this data, is anything changing? Obviously, since uh, since Ferguson, since Michael Brown, this has been getting more attention as an issue. Do you see any changes reflected in that data over those three years? Uh, one of the big things we've seen has been that there are fewer unarmed people being shot and killed. Um, there's been a a change there um, that the in raw number, the the number of unarmed people being shot and killed has started to fall. We saw this a little bit last year in 2016, and this continued so far in 2017. That said, in raw number, the to- total number of people being shot and killed by the police has not risen or fallen in any significant way. And so we think that about a thousand a year is about how often these fatal shootings happen. About a thousand a year. 2017 is on pace for that same total. Lowry shared some other numbers with me from the data. A quarter to a half of those killed by police each year are in the midst of some type of mental or emotional health crisis. The majority of those shot and killed by police are white. Of course, the majority of the U.S. is white. African Americans make up just 12 to 13 percent of the U.S. population. 
24% of people killed by police are Black. Another piece of data? Lowry said that the vast majority of those shot and killed by police are armed with a weapon. But that is not as simple as it sounds. As the number of unarmed people being shot and killed by the police has fallen a little bit in the last few years, we've seen a focus on not just unarmed victims, however, but also armed victims. Uh, There was this idea at the very beginning that we like to use armed and unarmed as this kind of signifier of of guilt or deservedness, right? You know, that if you were unarmed, then clearly there must be additional questions to ask. Or, but if you had a gun, maybe there aren't any other questions to ask. What was fascinating about 2016, as we got two years into this conversation and two years into this process, was that the conversation started to shift, that all of a sudden, simply the presence of a gun, and remember, we live in a country where gun ownership is legal, there are millions, hundreds of millions of guns um, in circulation. We have this realization in 2016 that perhaps the presence of a gun is not enough to just write off the shooting and not apply any more scrutiny. We had, in quick succession, the Alton Sterling case in Baton Rouge, who, Alton Sterling, had a gun, but video showed that perhaps should not have been killed. Philando Castile, who also had a gun, but our video evidence shows that perhaps he should not have been killed. We saw this in other circumstances as well. Seville Smith in in Milwaukee, who video would later show was throwing the gun away as he was shot in the back, or uh, Keith Lamont Scott in Charlotte, also in 2016, um, who had a gun, but again, the video evidence raises this question of whether or not he, he should have been shot. And so it's been really interesting to complicate this conversation, that the presence of a weapon should not necessarily be enough to automatically justify uh, lethal force. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because, I mean, armed, legally armed, armed but not raising the weapon, there seems like there's a million degrees within armed, if you're going to put that as a category of people killed by police. Yes, exactly. No, and I think that that, I think that's a huge part of it as well, is that we just, at the very beginning of this, didn't want to have a conversation about anyone who was not unarmed. Um, and and I think these last few years have just really taught us that lesson, that we, we have to um, pay attention to all of these shootings um, and apply scrutiny to them, because, again, the, the existence or the presence of a gun does not necessarily mean um, that this person deserved what happened, or that the police officer behaved reasonably. So what is the end goal here? This data didn't exist comprehensively until the Washington Post started collecting it. How many years do you keep collecting it? I mean, does this just become the record for as long as you have the resources to keep producing it? I hope that's the answer. I mean, the, the actual answer is far above my pay grade, but I, but I, but I am really heartened by the fact that my bosses and and the folks here at the Post have been so committed to this project now for three years. Um, this is important. It's an important data collection effort. You know, we, after our first year of reporting, had essentially embarrassed the FBI and the Department of Justice into committing to collect this data themselves. But when the uh, White House turned over, uh, when President Trump was elected, it became clear to us that this promise that had been made by the prior administration to start tracking fatal force by police officers, it became clear that that was not a promise that was going to be kept. And so right now, it's unclear when, if ever, the federal government will begin tracking this. And so it's up to me, which it isn't, but were it up to me, I think we would keep doing this indefinitely, because I think this is important information that the public needs to have and needs to have access to. And, And what we know is that even in moments when we're distracted by other things going on or other news stories, uh, three people are still being shot and killed by the police every single day. 
And there's going to be a moment where we suddenly all turn our eyes back to this idea and these topics, and it's going to be those conversations that are inevitable, that are going to happen every single year. Um, those conversations are better informed by having this data and this information. I talked with Lowry just last week. Today, I pulled the database up again, the count of how many people have been killed by police so far this year. It's now at 611. for listening to 74 Seconds. There's one more thing that we want to ask from you before we go. Please take a few minutes of your time and fill out a survey that we pulled together. It is short, we swear. We're looking for you to tell us about your experience listening and what you'd like to hear more of in the future. Or if you just want to share your email address with us, we'll keep you posted on what's next. Your input helps shape what we make. Find it all at 74seconds.org or on Twitter or Facebook. The 74 Seconds team is Reham Fashir, John Collins, Hans Buto, Meg Martin, and me, Tracy Mumford. Our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson. Thank you to Nancy Cassett, Mike Edgerly, Jonathan Blakely, and the entire NPR newsroom. Thanks to Nate Toby, APM's on-demand unit, and APM Reports. Also, thank you to Steve Griffith and to the entire technical team at NPR. And to you who have listened all season, thank you for sticking with us, following us on Twitter and Facebook, and keeping the conversation going. Thanks as well to everyone who took the time to talk with us. 74 Seconds is a production of NPR News and American Public Media. Tracy from 74 Seconds, and we wanted to let you know that our colleagues at APM Reports just launched the new season of their award-winning podcast, In the Dark. In this second season, they explore a new story with life-or-death consequences. It's the case of four people who were killed in a small town in Mississippi, and the story of why a black man on death row has been tried six times for those murders. You can listen and subscribe to In the Dark on Apple Podcasts.